Welcome back to Propel, Allen and Overy's podcast addressing all things related to self-driving cars. Today, we are joined by Daniel Ruiz, CEO of Zenzik. At the center of the UK's public-private 200 million sterling connected and self-driving car initiative, Zenzik offers a model for governments around the world to consider for accelerating the development of an AV ecosystem. Daniel joins us today to discuss the role it plays, the resources it has developed, and some of the lessons it has learned in fulfilling its mandate to work with private industry and academia to make the self-driving car world a reality. Daniel, thanks for joining the program. Hello, Paul. It's great to speak to you again. We we last chatted about a year ago, I believe. There's been a phenomenal amount of stuff going on in the intervening period, and not just in connected and automated mobility, in case people haven't noticed. But uh, connected and automated mobility, I think, is playing a bigger and bigger role because of the events of these last few months. We have an important mission that we need to fulfill. I can't wait to talk more about that and get into some of the details. And we have spoken, and it's great to hear you again. And given the experience of our listeners, if you wouldn't mind just taking us back a little bit to explain what Zenzik is and how it got off the ground. It started about four years ago when the automotive industry in the UK, which had started to pick up after having been in the doldrums about 15 years ago, it realized that the autonomy, self-driving was part of the future, connectivity was there to be exploited. And in order to do that, the UK has to be smart. We don't have as much money as some countries. We don't have as many people, although we do have a very comprehensive collection of people and a good ecosystem or supply chain. But we wanted to work more intelligently and that required a coordination. It required us to make sure that we could collaborate effectively. And so Zenzik was set up as the coordination hub and the facilitator to make sure that organisations, people in the public and private sectors could come together to work most effectively. And we had this £200 million of investment initially, which was focusing on developing our testing capability, recognising again that, like many countries, we have a number of facilities that can test connected and automated vehicles and their systems and the services they can provide. But actually, to make it really powerful, they should be coordinated, they should come together so they complement each other. And therefore, we've got this thing called CAM Testbed UK, Connected and Automated Mobility Testbed UK which is currently a collection of six test beds, individuals that are collaborating, uh, working constructively to make sure that we can test from controlled environments right through to public domain testing, all within an area about three hours drive apart maximum, which is effectively a circle which has on one diameter London, Europe's only megacity, and on the opposite diameter, the West Midlands, a very mixed urban, rural, sprawl, suburban areas that are adjacent to rural areas, all interlinked by a combination of different types of roads, rural, urban and highways. So that kind of mix comes together in the physical realm. We have a virtual model which sits on top of it, a digital twin, if you will, again, interoperable, working so that each of the models that are used by the various test beds and the various organisations within those test beds, of which there are 28, those models can communicate and they are interoperable in the same way as the physical test beds are. The last component of the test bed, Cam Test Bed UK, is a data marketplace to make sure that all the data, the information that's generated in testing and development by all the customers and clients of the facility 
can actually turn into value, can become from data through to information intelligence, and ultimately can be used to make decisions, whether those decisions are for future design of product or they are for implementation within services. So it's a maturing, very rapidly maturing facility. A year ago, when we last spoke, a number of those components were on the verge of moving into operations. Now, 90% of CAM Testbed UK is operational. So let's talk a little bit more about that. You mentioned that there are six of these test beds. Can you walk us through what each of those are and some of the progress that's happened over the last year? Yes, yeah, certainly. So the early stages of testing development, you want to be testing in a very safe environment. You want to make sure that there is no risk to public. Uh, you want to make sure that you can control the safety elements and the risks. And so control environments are key. There are two in particular at the heart of the UK's CAM Testbed UK. They are Myra and Millbrook. Myra and Millbrook are world-class, very reputable, well-established automotive industry test facilities. been going for at least half a century, if not more. And those have now got additional facilities which are dedicated to autonomous vehicles and to connectivity. They have 5G facilities, a very well-developed telecommunications network. At Myra, they have built an enormous Black Lake tarmac surface that is very flexible. Interesting because it was built just overlapping a very famous old battlefield. And these are some of the challenges we've had in developing this facility. They also had problems with newts. Newts are little amphibious creatures which are protected in the UK. And you cannot build where they are until you have relocated them, which, of course, is challenging because they're only evident at certain times of the year. And if the weather is wrong or if you've started work at a point where they have already hibernated, then you have to wait until they come out again. And that, of course, causes delays. A classic example of where these very complex capital works projects um, have nuances, which in retrospect are quite amusing, but at the time, of course, cost money. But we've overcome all those, and both the Millbrook and the Myra facilities are operational now, or, or on the verge of being operational. Then we've got a semi-controlled environment, which is a road network, which is very similar to what you get in a suburban area, but it is within our atomic research establishment near Oxford. That facility means that you've got a lot of scientists and people that are used to experimentation, aware that on their road network that they're using, it is shared with driverless vehicles and connected vehicles. So that's a semi-controlled environment. And then fully public domain, really exciting. So the Smart Mobility Living Lab has a large number of sensors. It is heavily networked. And as I say, it's sited in Europe's only mega city. So it presents a lot of opportunities for companies all the way around the world to say, if you can develop and prove your product or your service in London, then you can probably deploy it almost anywhere. That's the Smart Mobility Living Lab, which is very much an urban test facility. As I said, there is the other public domain facility, which is the Midlands Future Mobility, centred around Coventry and Birmingham in the West Midlands. And that's got over eight kilometres of urban roads, a significant stretch of highways, roads, all, again, heavily censored and networked. In the Midlands, they also have a 5G capability, so you can explore the connectivity really to the full extent. So that's the range from controlled through semi-controlled through to public domain facilities. And all of that makes a lot of sense. And for Sensic to be at the middle of that and to coordinate all of that activity from government to academia to industry makes a lot of sense. Uh, so much sense, though, I wonder if there are other countries that are following in your footsteps, or is it different places do it very differently? 
No, it's a very good question. And one of the pieces of work that Zenzik has done is to do a survey of what else is around the world and where do we have strengths and weaknesses. The first thing is a very introspective conclusion, and that is that without the work that Zenzik has been doing and without this investment by government and this collaboration by industry, I said 28 organisations come together to do this. Without that, we would be a third world country in terms of testing and development of these systems. And we would end up having to buy the systems and we would not be able to sell the expertise and the intellectual property we're creating very rapidly here. But on a global scale, that study also revealed we are a step ahead. And one of the primary reasons why we are is because each of these facilities, although they are run independently, they are interoperable. So we have got safety frameworks so that you can prepare a safety case once and it can migrate through all the other facilities. And that saves time, effort and, of course, increases safety because it's do once, do it right and reuse. There is also within that interoperability effort work being done on making sure that these digital twins are able to communicate with each other. So interoperable simulation. And I think this is work that has not necessarily been done anywhere else. And you've got fantastic facilities in the US, for example, M-City, the American Center for Mobility and so on in Michigan. But they are not as deliberately trying to collaborate and make sure that the process of development can flow from one to the next and on to a conclusion and ultimately to commercial deployment. Well, as you go through this process and your 28 partners and you as the coordinator and the six test beds go through all this learning, are you you find that you're keeping that intel and experience to yourselves, or are you willing to share it with the world to build upon? Personally, I'm probably a bit naive, but I believe that we have a responsibility to share all this because safety is at the forefront of our minds. The reasons for trying to deploy autonomous vehicles or connected and autonomous vehicles is because they do deliver increases in safety, but they also deliver increases in inclusion, kind of freeing up society, productivity, and then, of course, there's an impact on the environment. Other than productivity, which you could say is purely down to commercial gain and economic gain, the others are criteria that any country should be developing and should be collaborating on with other countries because we have a global responsibility. So, um, I mean, that sounds very kind of principled and uh, highfalutin, but the reality is, what are we doing about that? We have a memorandum of understanding, for example, with Michigan. We're working with our friends in the Michigan Economic Development Corporation to see how we can work together on these particular fields. Zentik is currently in close conversation with, for example, the state of Baden-Württemberg in Germany, where Daimler-Benz are based. And we're looking into how we can bring the three of our parties together and have some discussions about simulation, cyber resilience, security and so on. So definitely collaboration uh, internationally is a fundamental part of what we're doing. Well, and that makes a lot of sense beyond the the very noble goals um, that you've already stated, which are very noble and, and rightly so. I guess the concept that whatever your standards are, whatever your learnings are, the decisions you make on the approach, it would be very helpful if other regions of the world adopted those standards too. Make it easier for industry, make it easier for governments, make it easier for everyone involved, for the rules to be, if not identical, very similar, so it all works together around the globe. We have to accept the cultures, driving culture, differ from country to country, and there are challenges to make sure that we can replicate or reuse the principles, the processes we've developed in the UK in other countries. But of course, that richness can actually drive improvement locally as well as uh, internationally. And that applies to both standards and to legislation, of course. Sure. And I want to talk a little bit about that. But since we're on the top of kind of the global effort that you've been focused on, of course, now we're in the middle of a pandemic. What impact have you seen that the pandemic has had on this industry? Have you noticed it beyond, of course, the the normal everyday life? Has it impacted the self-driving car industry as well? 
We're going to talk about the roadmap later on. And one of the bits of work that we did with the 117 contributors to this most recent update to our roadmap was that very question. What do you think COVID has done for us? The straight answer is that it has probably reinforced the fact that the lowest hanging fruit, the most imminent areas for deployment are in freight more than in the passenger car. Now, work is going to continue on passenger cars uh, and robo-taxis and things like that. But I agree that we are likely to see mature commercial deployment of connected and automated vehicles in freight sooner than we are in passenger vehicles. And this is a little bit against the thought is that you would think that the pandemic has slowed all this down. It sounds like the pandemic has actually accelerated again in particular facets of the industry. It has in some respects, but in reality, it's a reinforcement for me that CAM, and apologies for using abbreviation because it'll save time in the podcast and mean your listeners don't get bored every time, say, connected and automated mobility. But CAM is an intrinsic part of the whole transport system, the mobility ecosystem. Because of the pandemic, people are thinking more about, well, there are changed travel patterns. People are going to be working more from home because they can or where they can, they will. And people will be traveling maybe not the same distances. Airlines are being impacted dramatically, but that may mean that there is more movement within country. There was a statistic I read which said seven times as many cardboard boxes were moving around the country during the lockdown earlier this year than the year before. So that is a mind-boggling number in terms of the impact on the number of movements of freight vehicles. So inevitably there are shifts. I think there are cases of accelerated evolution in certain areas and slightly decelerated in others, rather than a complete change in direction from where we were going a year ago. You mentioned the CAM roadmap, the recent update that was just released. Um, Can you walk us through what that roadmap is and what's changed? I think since the original launch, was that in 2019? Yes, it was almost exactly a year ago. We decided that we needed a tool to help us coordinate and to help organizations that were involved in connected and automated mobility to have strategies that were aligned, thereby de-risking their investments and their decisions in simple terms. That means knowing that there is a certain goal we're going towards that is far enough away. So we picked 2030. We described what we wanted the UK to look like in 2030. Nothing kind of dramatic or, or, or outlandish there. And then we worked with over 150 organizations from right across the public sector, private sector, SMEs, big corporations, uh, insurance companies, as well as automotive companies, lawyers, as well as police and so on to say, well, what are the milestones we need to reach in order to get from where we are now to where we've decided we want to be in broad terms in 2030? That came up with a roadmap which has over 600 milestones on it, all of which are interconnected. And those milestones sit not just within the vehicle development swim lane, if you want to call it that, but there are other areas that complement vehicle. The infrastructure is clearly something that has to be considered. You can't look at the vehicles in isolation from the infrastructure or vice versa. But those two are sandwiched between a swim lane which has regulatory activity, which has human factors activity, which has insurance activity in at one end. And then at the other side of infrastructure and vehicles, the sandwich is closed by services. So the services to industry, to people and so on. And these four swim lanes of human factors and and government stuff uh, on the one hand, infrastructure, vehicles and then services are all feeding towards outcomes and information that can be used to work on strategies by government, by industry and by end users. So all three stakeholder groups, if you want to call them that, uh, need to be catered for. Very impressive and certainly very holistic um, in your approach here. Uh, So have you noticed any dramatic changes from the original release of the roadmap last year to this year? 
Uh, no. And that, to me, was a tiny bit surprising, given the events of this year, but reinforces what I was saying a few minutes ago about the fact that this is not causing a step change. No, in fact, what it showed us was that uh, I think about 90% of the milestones uh, in the first five years are already being addressed, being worked on, which is good. That's as you'd expect. It told us that I think we've over 1,600 data points in, which are bits of information which are telling us that the map is being followed that there are a significant number of organisations, as I say, over 117 contributed to this particular update. They are actively working on progress towards the milestones and they are making progress at this rate. So it's given an extra dimension to the roadmap, not just a kind of these are the points that are on it. There's a whole community that is moving along the road towards the end destination. That's great. And you mentioned as part of that assessment that there's the legal and regulatory framework that's being studied. And I know there's a law commission uh, that's studying particular issues within the roadmap with an eye to get their results out next year in 2021. Can you walk us through a little bit more about what that commission is studying, insights into their early findings and what they think might need to change or be refined? Yes, legislation is critical because although we know that you can produce some publicly accessible standards and then some standards that might be generated by the UN or Europe or NHTSA or whoever, those can be produced in varying periods of time from short to medium. Legislation takes longer. And so very early on, the UK government decided the need to think about how can we make sure that our legislation embraces the innovation that is coming with autonomy and enables, unlocks the social and economic impact that it can make in a timely manner. So the Law Commission started its review. The way things work in the UK, that there is a cycle of consultation, analysis, consultation, analysis, consultation, analysis, and then legislation recommendations are being made. So there's three cycles. We've done the second one. And this is a really interesting piece of work. And I have an enormous amount of respect for it because the legal minds that have been applied to it have tried to make sure they do not constrain innovation. They do unlock it. Now, safety and consideration of the public well-being has to be at the forefront, but that doesn't always preclude quite innovative activity going on. The first iteration, the first consultation focused on safety and came up with recommendations on safety assurance. This second one uh, has been looking at highly automated road passenger services, HARPS. So this acronym will come up uh, once or twice, maybe. And it's looking at vehicles that require no human input whatsoever whilst they're in operation. In the SAE level vernacular, that's level four or level five. From part of that process, either the initial review or even this latest on HARPS, is there a particular area has been identified as of need of significant revision? I think in the first one, one of the concepts that came out was the concept of the user in charge, that's the phrase, so user in charge, which is akin to saying there must be an operator, but what are the responsibilities of the operator or the user in charge? It doesn't necessarily mean a person sitting behind a steering wheel or in the vehicle even. That would be someone who has taken the right degree of responsibility or or ultimately is is accountable for the function of the vehicle. I know that's giving a heartburn here in the United States as well, and frankly around the world is, you know, if something does go wrong, who is responsible? Should there be regs for that or should we let just the law evolve and the U.S. common law system let it evolve to try to figure those rules out? I think that what the, the UK, the Law Commission review did was it gave some principles to work to, uh, some guidelines, which I think were very helpful because I think there has to be a balance between letting these laws evolve and driving them. And that's come through in the commission review. The same thing um, with this second iteration with the public services. And there are, in this case, 
the point about who bears legal responsibility for insurance roadworthiness and installing software updates, there was apparently strong support for the proposal that this should be presumed to be the vehicle's registered keeper. Then, of course, there's a nuance which says, well, who is the vehicle's registered keeper in the case of uh, vehicle leasing and commercial peer-to-peer lending? So some nuances that need to be addressed, as they clearly do in the US as well. But interesting that the conversation still has moved forwards quite dramatically, and there is something around which it can focus rather than it being a totally free-ranging conversation. Well, it's remarkable that the approach that Zenzik and your community that you've developed there is plainly very pro industry is looking for ways um, to to move forward, continue safety, to develop the rules of the road, um, you know, all the facets that you've talked about to make this the reality of self-driving cars here. Right. In parallel is also this, what we see in the United States, a rather large public perception problem with frankly some rather interesting behavior from some drivers that will literally block or tease uh, self-driving cars as they're being tested on the road. What's Zenzik's role in that part of the discussion? I think we have a responsibility to make sure that we are considering the public perception. I, I have this kind of acronym, or if you want, in, in my head, which is three A's, awareness, acceptance, and then adoption. And, and that's the sequence that public needs to go through. And we have at the moment a job to make sure that there is as much awareness as possible of what self-driving really means and what the implications are, both the benefits and the potential pitfalls. And, and I think transparency is absolutely critical because otherwise we fall back into the period of just hype. So that Zendik has a role there. And the reason why I'm talking to you is because this is this is one of the means for, for communicating our thoughts about where things are going and what they are. Um, but we do a lot of media work as well. And what's interesting as an organisation that sits between the public and the private sector and is funded by both is that we can speak objectively on behalf of both. Now, today, of course, I'm expressing some of my own views and hopefully it's, it's obvious when they are my own rather than official ones. But generally speaking, we would try not to stray into conjecture and opinion, but maintain as objective a stance as possible. And I think that's helpful in terms of, I was going to say converting the public, but I don't want to convert because that implies that there's a degree of manipulation. I want to inform and enable the public to make informed decisions. And the decision should be centred around a degree of trust that we are testing as rigorously as we can and safety is at the heart of things. And we want to make sure that we don't deploy anything until it is safer than what is out there already. But of course, coming back to your point, there are instances of where people in what are actually only level two vehicles in which the operator, the driver, should always be in control, where drivers have done stupid things like going and sitting in the back seat while the car is on autopilot. Now, there was one example of that in the UK last year. The chap was arrested and I think has either been imprisoned or is tied over for an extended period and has had some serious fines imposed. But those kind of things we've got to try and avoid pretty much at all costs. And the legislation needs to help us there. Certainly your transparency in all of that you're doing will undoubtedly help. And I think also as part of your awareness side of things, I think the industry recognizes that and governments recognize that the human being part of the driving experience is the most risky, most dangerous part of it. But it won't go to zero. It may go close to zero, but there may still be accidents, but far, far less. I think it was million four uh, last year that perished due mm. to car-related accidents. This roadmap, wonderfully transparent, but is obviously focused on the United Kingdom. You've mentioned that you've got some relationships with places like Michigan, and you've certainly gotten some insight from others. But can you talk us about that, kind of the international partner aspect of this? Absolutely. And although it is a UK roadmap, or one that we've produced in the UK with UK 
organisations. Many of those organisations are international. And I've got a quote in front of me which uh, puts in perspective because, again, a roadmap is a topology and, and it can be stretched and squeezed and still connect in a very similar way and be applicable in other countries. A lady called Christian White, who's the co-chair of the US Joint National Strategy on Transportation Automation, said very recently, for the past nine months, we've been following the work Zenzik is doing with your excellent roadmap, using it as a model to develop a US vision and strategy document. And that's just one example. We've got similar ones from Japan, from Singapore, and Canada, in fact, is another country that is scrutinising what we're doing uh, with the roadmap and with the coordination model of Zenzik and likes what they see. So these things are transferable. That's great. And I can imagine that as you're, you're eyeing your partners just in the European Union, you see that there's a lot of traction there, uh, given the proximity to things, that they're adapting your standards or adopting the approach within the roadmap? Yeah, well, we work very closely with um, EU partners anyway through the UN ECE process of developing standards. And each of the countries has people delegated in. In fact, the UK chairs a couple of the key committees on connected autonomous vehicles uh, in the UN, which won't change regardless of what happens with the connectivity of the European community. But we also work on publicly accessible standards, so PASs, which are standards that can be created quite quickly. Um, and we've got a program of developing half a dozen in this current two-year period, focusing on safety, security, and so on, which we will implement. And quite often what happens with these is they are fed into the slower evolving international standards. But part of that, again, is about participating in formal organisations like the UNECE. Another part is making sure that we have ongoing relationships and there is trust and communication between countries. And this is a very well-connected community in CAM. And on that note, if other companies hearing this want to be a part of the roadmap or a part of your program, how can they make that happen? By going to zenzik.io slash roadmap very simple. And you'll see links to the roadmap report, which has just been reissued and says a bit about COVID and uh, what's happened in the last year and the CAM creators, the people that have been participating and progressing along the map. It also says how you can become a CAM creator. And I think that if you're not in the UK, it doesn't matter if you come and place yourself on the map for reference, because another purpose of this in addition to saying how we're progressing and at what rate, is to create connections between organisations. So the whole point of the roadmap uh, really was to say, well, where am I on it and how do I map my way through it and who am I dependent on? So if you can identify a dependency on maybe a certain product or a bit of legislation, then you can contact whoever is actually progressing with the development of that product and that can bring you closer together and help you both de-risk your businesses. So sign up as a CAM creator, I would say. On the website, you can also see an interactive version of the roadmap, which is in Sharp Cloud. It's, it's really easy to use. And again, you can see where you are and navigate your way around in that. And it, it's a very interesting tool. Daniel, this has been wonderful. I appreciate all of your works and certainly your time you're spending with us today. Zenzik clearly reaching its mandate to make self-driving cars a reality. Very much appreciate your time today and look forward to catching up maybe in another 12 months to see how things have progressed. It'll be fascinating to do that. Yes. Thank you, Paul.